So I've always kind of wondered about this of like, is this a conscious effort by these organizations to churn out what they consider to be expensive salespeople and in order to like get rid of like the expensive tier and bring in like, oh, we've just hired somebody out of college at like a whatever base instead, who's now the like, so I've kind of wondered, like, is this like a conscious decision being made of like, this is how we like force attrition (laughs) without expensive layoffs or severance packages uh, versus just like, we don't know what we're doing. So we just did this because this is how we, 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 you know, we're like, we're trying to hit this OTE number and this is what has to happen in order for them to have a 200K OTE, right? So, Steve, I know a lot about you, but uh, why don't you, you know, for the for the sake of people that are going to watch and listen to this, you know, explain who you are and why you're important. Uh, definitely not important, but <laughs> you I are important, Steve, because this conversation is uh, important. That makes you important. My mom thinks so, but uh, at least my mom thinks so. But um, yeah, my name is Steve Faru, uh, President and CEO of the Sales Collective, and. Uh, you know, a lot of people ask what we do and everyone wants to know, well, what's your value prop and elevator pitch and all this crap. Um, and what we do is undo 99% of what people have been taught about sales and sales leadership. And so a lot of the stuff that's out there akin to the used car salesman crap, right? Always be closing. I mean, all that stuff that's, you know, in the public eye is not real sales, right? Um, it's interesting to see how people view salespeople. And um, if you know Daniel Pink, um, who's an amazing author, you know, he does a study in the book Drive, um, which is the best leadership book I've read. But they do a study and they ask people, you know, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear sales or selling? I ask this right in all my talks and workshops and things, and I change it to what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the word salesperson? And we get the gamut of answers, some of which I will not mention on this uh, our time together. Um, but the number one word was pushy. Um, the number two word was yuck. I mean, it's not, it's, you know, ugh, I think is fourth, like a bodily function. So, the perception of salespeople is horrendous, um, and it's due to the fact that people have had bad experiences selling. And so, when you have you know felons like Jordan Belfort, you know who are promoted as a sub magic sales trainer, like the dude stole two hundred million dollars from unsuspecting investors, um, hasn't paid a dime back, went to federal prison. Um, what does he do for a living? Uh, sales trainer? I mean, what are you kidding? What world are we in? What's next? Fucking OJ Simpson's relationship advice class. I mean, what you know, it is so unbelievable of what people think true sales are about. Um, it's not Cardone the con man, it's not Jordan Belfort, it's not, you know, always be closing. It's guys like Chris Gardner, which nobody knows who that is, but Chris Gardner um, is what the pursuit of happiness was based on. That's a real sales movie. Um you know, guts, stick to family, all right, never giving up. That's real sales. So we run a consultancy that helps salespeople, companies, organizations, right, be able to sell more effectively by being a human being, 
Uh, we help companies build sales processes and onboarding uh, for their new salespeople. We help companies hire the right salespeople using something called sales DNA and helping, again, training, coaching, development, role play, that type of stuff. So just flipping the switch on, on pretty much everything people have been taught about sales. So you, you talk about Jordan Belfort. Billy McFarland of Magnesis and Fire Festival fame is out of jail and is on the internet now pushing his marketing consultancy, you know, business. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm just like, I'm sure people are going to pay him a lot of money too. Like that's the crazy part. I am sure he is going to be successful at it and people are going to pay him a lot of money at yeah. But like, anyways, I don't, I, I've already, yeah, I've, I, I just, so I just finished a Red Bull. Like maybe we'll come back to this a little bit later. We should be doing shots okay. of bourbon, you know, or shots of tequila, you know, something else instead and make this really, really, really feisty. Okay, so yeah. Steve, you and I met, and I, I run a uh, you know technology business where we help you know companies find and acquire technology. Right? We'll just we'll, we'll use a simple version of it. But when you start talking about and you look at any any startup or any mature company in their sales organization sales stack, you know you can get into conversations around like, do you have an SDR BDR function? Do you have an AE? How are you structuring your AE? Do you have an AM or a CSR that comes after that? You know what's you know like like terminology and phrases kind of change and where are like the, the, the points between A and B and C. And, you know, part of all this, when you start trying to figure this stuff out is you start to, you know, say, okay, well, what is your, you know, what's your compensation structure? And I want to talk to you about quotas and comp structure, probably the most, but I want to talk about these other things and companies as they're actually, actually yeah. doing this. But, and I have, I have some personal experience with comp that I want to get into, but let, let's start with like, you know, bad structures for sales and bad comp structures. And then I'm going to talk about what good structures for sales and good comp structures are. And, and, and I think it's probably makes more sense to start with like the AE kind of world, like the actual, like, like what we think of a sellers versus like an SDR BDR, but you know, touch on this as well. So let's, 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 sure. what is a, I mean, you see this a lot, right? We've talked about this. What is a bad comp and quota structure for a salesperson and probably what most people are trying to do and, and, uh, Let's start there. So in, in your world, it might, you know, be a little bit different. I, I probably shared with you probably our one of our favorite clients, right? It's managed IT um, out of Austin. And um, we've had so much success there. Their model, again, they have AEs, then they have pre-sales engineers. And so they work together really well. We just helped this client hire their newest AE and their director of sales in, I don't know, six weeks. Um, their new AE, if you ask her, name, explain the cloud to me, right? She would say, you mean like Cumulus? That's about her knowledge of IT. She was their second highest producing AE in her second month. She knows nothing about IT, zero, less than I know. She turned down uh, a 75K signing bonus and a higher salary from another firm to work with our client. So it's not the comp plan that gets people to come. Uh, it's the culture, the environment. Do they feel like they're going to be supported? All of that stuff and people will take less money. This is what's happening, as you know, right in the tech space with idiots like Elon Musk and Zuckerberg and, you know, <laughs> These guys are completely clueless human beings um, that 
have taken other people's ideas and taken credit for them, which is a whole other story. But besides that, uh, your employees are not your slaves and certainly your salespeople are not slaves, but they're treated like slaves, which is interesting that Twitter, you know, Elon tried to strong arm their head of sales and she goes, yes, uh, bye. So you have all these tech salespeople, amazing women and men right now who have been alienated, mistreated, devalued. It is so easy to find great sales talent today at a discount. It's never been easier. Um, so I thank them for doing this stuff. But to go back to the comp and with this client, it wasn't a, oh, we'll pay you X amount of total revenue and all that stuff. They pay as a function of, of GP. Um, and, you know, the higher the GP, right, there are accelerators, you know, in their bonuses based on hitting a certain amount of GP. So you hit 500K in GP, you get this. When you're saying GP, you're talking you about gross profit, right? Gross okay. profit. Yeah, sorry. Uh, you hit a, a million in gross profit, you get this accelerator. So there are things like that um, that I think are um, more ideal uh, in a comp plan. Um, and you'd ask what's bad? A percentage of total sales, mm -hmm. right? That's bad because if you're not making money on it, what does it matter? But there are tons of comp plans out there like that. And there are sales reps who, again, are told that the reason for their presence on earth is to hit this made up quota that doesn't apply to them. Uh, and if they hit it, they get this amount of money. So what are they going to do? Cut corners, sell bad deals, give away uh, profit, right? sign contracts, discounting, all of those things. So companies are creating their own Frankensteins and then mad, right, that they now have Frankenstein. So, I mean, really common in that in that environment, right, is we talk about like um, OTE, right, base plus plus uh, commission. And, yeah. you know, uh, base plus commission equals X dollar, right? So, I mean, I'll just pick a number out of the air, like $200,000. So maybe, if, grand, maybe you have 100K yeah. base and 100K, you know, commission on top yeah. of that base. And that's a it's a pretty like normalized. Yeah, 50, 50 is pretty right? standard. But that but that in order to hit your OTE, you have to hit plan. And then you'd say, you know, and this is this was when I started digging into this for myself. That was, I think, the most fascinating thing was like, OK, the assumption is that like 80 percent at plan is like a really good like you've actually kind of nailed what your quotas are for your sellers. If like 80 percent of them are successful and like about 60 percent right. was like considered like you're like it's still at the higher tier of like like you've got a effective sales force. But, you know, what's what's yeah. fascinating to me about this conversation around like OTE being base plus plant, you know, plus, um, you know, plus a variable comp is and what you just said, and this is what triggered me originally was like, well, what's the quota, right? Like, well, how do you recoup the costs? And and especially, you know, and 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 what have I seen a lot of I, with my clients? Well, you have somebody that just goes out and crushes it. And actually, not just clients, with a lot of our suppliers in our portfolio, right? Somebody goes out and crushes it. I mean, absolutely, just just hits a grand slam out of the park, crushes it, and then the next year yeah. at their SKO, their sales kick off. It's like, here's your new quota. Your quota just went up four hundred percent, you know. And, yeah. and they go, okay, great. I'm never getting paid again, right? Exactly. Why do companies and sales leadership do this? I mean, because to me, as an outsider, that I was always like. No, no, no. You, you, you want your salespeople driving Ferraris. Like that's like a good thing, right? You know, but like yeah. that's not what happens in, in in the real world. 
I mean, there's a few reasons. One is just pure greed, which is the overriding factor. Number two, you have people setting these quotas and goals, couldn't sell their way out of a paper bag, have no clue what it's like in the field, zero clue. I mean, none. The other part of this, which is kind of weird, um, I'll ask you this. You're married, mm -hmm. right? Yes. So either you or your wife, whatever, let's say you're cooking for your wife and you make dinner tonight and she goes, what's this? And you go, oh, well, I asked the neighbor, you know, what she wanted for dinner. So I made it for you. What would your wife say? Yeah. So we have this experience with our children and, and what we're teaching them to do versus what, you know, your natural response is. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get the, you know, I get the point, right? So any scenario like that, you, players on a basketball team don't try to accomplish another team's goals. Last time I checked, um, salespeople don't give a crap about your goals. They care about two things, themselves and their families. They don't go home at night and lay down next to their wife and go, honey, I am so excited for tomorrow. <laughs> Why? I can't wait to raise my company's EBITDA. I, I can't sleep. I'm so excited. Nobody cares. And so when you just assign these idiotic, arbitrary numbers that have no bearing on anything other than raising your company's value or your stock price or whatever, what part of your brain thinks that that salesperson is going to go out there and run through brick walls for that? Right. It's just there's no conceivable reason that that a salesperson would do that. But what's worse is that this assumption that all salespeople care about money and commissions and all that stuff, that is a complete farce. Um, the best salespeople in the world are intrinsically motivated. The best business people in the world are intrinsically motivated. They are not extrinsically motivated. And this idea of this carrot and stick, right, that, you know, comes from the, you know, 1300s, that is not what drives long-term success on sales teams. What that will drive is sandbagging, skimping on deals, commission breath, jamming people into buying who aren't ready because you put some arbitrary date on the time that a prospect's money is no good. Looking at this and talking with people about it, I understand, I think, where a lot of this comes from, because when you look at it from a headcount standpoint, sales is the only place where you can really have like a direct corollary between like, you know, revenue versus headcount expense, right? So if you say, right, yeah. earn your dollars, you got to do right, this. Right, it's right. Like, and so, so the, so the mentality, I mean, like you can't do that in marketing, you can't do that in operations, you can't do that in finance. It's like, but in sales, you can say, okay, if I go out and hire a salesperson and I pay them X, a hundred thousand dollars, I need to generate yeah. Y in order for that hire to be worth it for me. Right. And that, and that why usually be is I, I need to generate $500,000 of, of top line revenue per $100,000 big yeah. salesperson, right? Uh, you, you know, so like it's an easy trap to fall into. And then, of course, you say, oh, oh, I look at my my sales organization and I've got, you know, and, and Susie like crushed it. And, you know, uh, instead of her making, you know, two, you know, 200K this year, she made $500,000. You know, she made more than the the, the than the 
SVP of sales or she made more than the CEO or she made yeah. more than the business owner, right? Because she just, she dominated. Yeah. And when you think of like a sales plan in order to make 500K, she probably brought in like $5 million worth of revenue, right? Right. Yeah. But so then the next year, like, oh, great. Now your, your success bar changes. It was like, you were too successful. So now your success bar changes. So that way you can never hit that success, you know, success bar again. And, you know, like pat on the back, like, thank you very much. Right. So, you know, reading and looking at and trying to understand and, and unpacking going backwards of like where all this stemmed from. And like Jason yeah. Limkin publishes a lot of like what he did at EchoSign. And, and he had a very interesting comp structure. And now, mind you, I think the majority of their sellers were taking inbound leads. So it was structured a little bit differently and they were selling a different different right. ACV or average contract value or annual contract value. I think AC. Um, yeah. But he got off a quarterly system for their quotas and had a comp plan based around accelerators that was just like, here's how much you, I mean, this is a, at the same time now as I verbalize it, it sounds really bad, but like, this is how much you cost. Once you pay for yourself, then gravy kicks in, right? And and it sounds like it solves a lot of problems, but at the same time, it seems like it still creates even more problems because you're like, you, you know, you're like saying, okay, pay for yourself first. <laughs> and And if you do that, then we'll give you a reward, right? Like that, that I mean, that, that, you know, there's something about that that doesn't sit with me well either. Yeah, it's a little odd. It's, um, yeah, just think about, think about football player. You draft a quarterback, right? Number one overall, and you pay them 40 million bucks, right? How do you ensure that they become successful? As an organization, what do you do? You drafted the number one overall quarterback. What do you do? Do you just let them figure it out for your 40 million? Is that what you do? What do they do? L Nutrition coach, mental coach, uh, training, uh, new regimen, new diet, personal chef, one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching, practice, role-play, game film, practice again, game film, one-on-one -on -one coaching. And how long does that continue? Yeah, forever. It never stops. Okay. But that's not what happens in companies. They hire somebody and go, hey, there's the field. <laughs> huh? what, what do you mean? Yeah, I mean... You'll, you played football, you, you figured it out. Oh, oh, by the way, let me show you how the ball is made. Let me show you the stitching and, and how they put the leather together. Are, do we have any meetings or anything? No, no. Well, yeah, we'll have meetings to, to make fun of you for not performing from the coaching we're not giving you. Um, so we'll get to do that every week. Cool. Um, and are we going to practice plays or are you going to show me how to um, hit these certain routes? No, no. Okay, well, so what kind of coaching and training do I get? Oh, well, we're going to show you how the product works. Um, and then in uh, 12 days, you'll be out in the field. Okay. And, and then what happens? Oh, well, then we'll get mad at you um, for not performing. Um, and then we'll blame you. Cool. Where do, I, where do I sign up for this? This sounds amazing. Um, that's 90 5% of organizations. So companies used to do this. I mean, you now it's not common today, but 
you know, meet people that worked for Xerox back in the day or, you know, yeah, IBM. And it was like, IBM. they were hired into a company and it was like they were hired and then they went to two or three weeks. I mean, they were, they were sent off to wherever it was for two or three weeks yeah. and they taught them how to sell. Like it, it wasn't, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of product training, but, but, you know, and now when I say, you know, this, you can, you can really tell the people and they're usually like late forties, early fifties. Now, you know, they're still out in the, out and out in the sales world because they were, they did this in the early eighties, but it was like, right. You know, here's what supplies you need in your briefcase. This is how you dress. This is how you say hello. Yeah. This is how you shake hands. This is how you prospect. This is how you follow up. This is how you create notes. Yeah. And it was like, and, and why did this stop? Like, why don't companies do this anymore? I mean, even if it's like, they don't want to do it themselves, why don't they send like hire people and send them off to like sales boot camp somewhere and be like, okay, you're going to, you know, your, your first three weeks, are you going to onboard? And then we say, not everybody doesn't do this. There's a lot of organizations that do this and you can tell because they're massively successful that they're doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Most of the big ones, I, fortune 50, fortune 100, let's say you are about to hire somebody, their base salary is 400 grand. You, that's kind of a big nut, right? Where units is going to guess and hope they figure it out. These women and men spend months and months before they're even allowed to go in the field, months, and then practice, drill, rehearse, repeat, right? All role play, all of that. They can't touch the field where the average company goes, hey, we gave you 19 days, by the way, that's the average length of onboarding in this country for American companies, 19 days, as if that's enough. Like you can't become an attorney uh, unless you put in seven years, six to seven. You can't become a physician unless you put in eight to 12. But you can be a salesman because I gave you a, a, you know, access to Zoom info and just start emailing people, right? And so it's laziness, one, and complacency, I think, too. You know, the economy's been good for how many years now? Well, so you have a bunch of companies who have salespeople who are just glorified order takers because an orangutan could sell something right in this economy in the last 10 years. And now they're all in big trouble. Um, and they're all realizing, holy crap, we don't have a sales process. We don't have systems. Our comp plan sucks. We don't have the right salespeople. So now what? Um, and it was just like sweeping all this stuff under the rug, you know, for the last decade, um, this big tech boom, right? And companies are selling for 20x EBITDA, third, oh, overpaying. And all these PE firms, uh, so many of them are screwed, right? You don't buy high and sell low. That's usually not a good thing. But you have a bunch of people, you know, like in San Diego, they paid $3 million for a, you know, 1100 square foot house. Right. And, you know, at some point you have to realize it probably wasn't a good investment, but that's what's happening to a lot of these companies who are in, you know, the VC world or these private equity guys that they overpaid because they were looking at how easy it was to make money and they had no systems in place, no continuous coaching or training. The comp plan wasn't designed and customizable to the person. And all of these things are now starting to fall apart and they're selling stuff for, you know, 70 cents on the dollar and just taking a loss. Um, but I think it's laziness and I think it's complacency where 
they're just like, oh, we can put a live body in here, right? Make a million a year on this, you know, product. So let's pay someone 30 grand, not a hundred. So they hire less quality talent thinking, right? That it will produce the same amount. When in reality, you know, the Delta of their saving 70 grand cost them, you know, 300 grand, right? And missed opportunities. So it's, it's a lot of factors, um, but I just think many of them don't know what they're doing. There's also a lot of stats with that in sales of like, you know, the, the you know, your best salespeople actually, you know, sell higher ACVs. They sell, there's, there's a higher net retention, you know, like all the stats yeah. are better when you have a, a good salesperson versus an underperforming salesperson, but also the underperforming salespeople rush to discounts. You know, so it's like your the ACV drops, the GP, the gross bar, um, profit drops, like everything. It's 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 not just like there's like more. Re- I mean, it's like everything about the health of that sale just everything. just goes in the toilet. Yeah. So referrals, reviews, recommendations. I, I mean, the list goes on. It's endless. Are companies um, expecting too much out of their sales team? And when I say when I say that, what I mean is like, isn't is there an argument for specialization of, you know you can't hire a seller and expect them to be a good prospector and a good relationship person and a good account manager. I mean, do you really need, like at what, at what size does it make sense that you have, here's a dedicated inbound team. Here's a dedicated sales development team, just doing prospecting meeting, you know, a qualification and meeting setting. And here's a, you know, here's a dedicated AE who's going to own the relationship at this time. And, and do you, do you go from an AE to an AM? Like, like how, you know, you know, like, I, you know, the, like, what are the tiers of this stuff? I mean, you know, and how big do you have to be before this specialization really starts to kick in and make sense? From what we see, it's hard to put a number on it. I would think once you're, you know, ascending past probably 50 or 100 million, that becomes more of a team game, mm-hmm. right? Because you need the support. You can't maintain all that growth and scale. But we have a client, our largest clients, a billion, whatever. Um, and they have about 70 sales reps, but most of them do their own work, right? They still do service. They still follow up. They still manage the accounts. Um, and they're a billion four. So it's, it's all really based again on the product, the service, what's involved, right? Is there fulfillment? Is there, Yes, supply chain issues, right? That need to be managed. So it's a hard answer. But I, there are people that have certain skills in certain areas. Again, that should be put in those positions to win, and other people, right, should not be. That's just so. Why we use sales DNA so much? I mean, it just makes it so simple. And when you can go. <laughs> This guy's not a hunter. He's a 12 on hunting. He won't prospect. He needs to be liked. This is not for him. But as people love him, let's move him over right to account retention or management or whatnot, because those are his skill sets. But if you have the wrong people in the wrong positions, I mean, it could be devastating. But if you're not looking and you don't know what to look for, how would you ever discover it? Um, You know, we, we have several friends and things that are, you know, big into EOS and whether it comes from EOS or good to great or wherever it comes from or Vern, you know, having the right people in the right seats, you know, we've heard this, you know, 50 million times. Yeah. And all the permutations. But if your driver is blind, it don't matter. 
And why do companies not understand this? You can have amazing salespeople if your sales manager is inadequate, untrained, unfriendly, not a coach. What do you think is going to happen? And that is never talked about. We don't even care who's driving this bus. It's all about right people, right seats, wrong. Who is the driver? And in almost every failing sales organization, we can point to exactly where it is. And it is always at the sales leadership level, always. RPRS, right people, right seat, also applies to the managers, right? So like, you know, you can't yeah. pick and choose how you apply that. Let me, let me go, I want to go back to something because you've said a couple of things that have triggered this thought for me. You know, you yes. talk about, you know, client in Austin, they have a bunch of AEs and pre-sales engineers. And yeah. I see this a lot in, you know, we have support organizations at all the major suppliers that we work with that, you know, support us and our clients. These are quota carrying comp structured. And it's always insane to me because, and the same thing with pre-sales, you know, pre, you know, any sort of like sales engineering role usually has a variable comp structure as well. But like, but it's, uh, it makes absolutely no sense in the sense that like, they're not in control of their destiny. Like if I call up AT&T and say, okay, we've got a client and, uh, you know, it's a $20 million contract. Like the person that is going to drive that business had absolutely nothing to do with that pipeline. But then the next year they're going to be like, oh, you sold $20 million in this one deal. So now your quota is going to be $20 million. Right. And like, congratulations, yeah. pat on the back, you know, like, like it, it feels. And, and by the way, so I've always kind of wondered about this of like, is this a conscious effort by these organizations to churn out what they consider to be expensive salespeople and in order to like get rid of like the expensive tier and bring in like, oh, we've just hired somebody out of college at like a whatever base instead, who's now the per like, so I've kind of wondered, like, is this like a conscious decision being made of like, this is how we like force attrition <laughs> without expensive layoffs or severance packages uh, versus just like, we don't know what we're doing. So we just did this because this is how we, 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 you know, we're like, we're trying to hit this OTE number and this is what has to happen in order for them to have a 200K OTE, right? I think it could be twofold. I think maybe there's some planned obsolescence in there, right? It's possible. But I think a, a bigger function of that comes from leadership. So again, leadership, right, gets, gets you know, their, their quotas and targets foisted on them, right, by the board or whoever, right? And so they now feel pressure that, you know, their gravy train's going to end unless we hit this number. So these leaders have had about 0%, right, uh, training, coaching, and understanding of how to lead other human beings in sales. So they think, well, let's just dangle this carrot and let's use fear, intimidation, right, and threat in order to drive production from our sales team, which clearly is not the way to go. And that's why so many top salespeople leave companies and have huge salaries and huge bonuses and give up their stock options all day, every day um, because of this method. A second piece of that, if you take Aaron Judge, right, hit 62 home runs last year in the American League, set the record, right, to Yankee, which I can't believe I'm giving the Yankee credit. But anyway, it would be akin to the Yankees going to Judge right now and going, hey, buddy, you know, congrats on the record last year. 
Just so you know, you got to hit 73. Yeah. What? Yeah, 73. What, what are you talking about? Well, that's the made up number we have. You got to do 20% more than last year. That's what's happening to salespeople. And it's clinically insane to do that to someone. When in reality, if somebody blasted through their goals, quotas, metrics, dreams, whatever you want to call it, you want them to repeat the behavior. You don't want to reduce the chances that they repeat the behavior. And what's a surefire way to reduce the chances? Tell them they're not good enough. Tell them they didn't make us enough money and tell them you're cutting their pay. Yeah, that'll work. And companies do it all day, every day because the sales reps tell us, right? And you, I have a list that's gargantuan of all the complaints we hear from salespeople and you wouldn't believe the stuff they do. There are situations where let's say somebody's goal is 2.5 million, right? In sales and they get whatever, 30K bonus, whatever it is. And they do 2.498 million. Didn't make it. And the company goes, well, can't give you the money. Yeah. What part of the human brain would make you think that this salesperson would go, okay, wait a second. So you kept all the money. Um, you guys made 750 grand in profit. Yeah, I don't deserve that. And they wonder why people leave. So, uh, I, I mean, this comes back to you see like you see comp plans that have an element of draw, right? We're going to we're going to pay you one hundred fifty thousand dollars because that's what you need in order to come over from this other place. But we're going to pay you one hundred fifty K and of that one hundred fifty K, you know, hundred K is draw, which is going to ratchet down month over month over month until you get to like 50 K. And at that yeah. point, you know, your quote, your comp should, you know, your, your, uh, your, your, you know, your bonus element of your comp based on sales should be that hundred K and then you're fine. Right. I can't think of an example where that was a successful sales plan or that's actually worked out for either side. And so I agree. And so intuitively it tells me, okay, there's something, I mean, like you have to do something different, right? But then you get back to this like cycle, which feels like from a fear and risk standpoint of like, we can't, we can't risk hiring somebody at, you know, $12,000 a month and, you know, with all the, so $15,000 a month after all their overhead and like, you know, they don't produce. Cause if we hire them for 15 K and they don't produce, like, you know, we, we blew it. Right. But it, it doesn't feel like structuring i mean i i kind of wonder like if you look at an organization if you just said hey i'm gonna pay you 200k like there's got to be other metrics that you can take and apply you know and say is this person actually doing their job or not are they going to be successful or not are they going to work out well before you get to the 30 60 90 day mark where you kind of you know even if you're not going through like hey we've got a sane onboarding process and we're going to spend a month teaching you how to be a seller because we assume you know how to how to be a salesperson now yeah you know what should we be doing differently so we we ask clients this question a lot or prospective clients and let's say they're you know someone they're paying 120k whatever that's their base right so you've got base you've got salary benefit you got all that stuff right so all in let's say it's 150k nut let's say that they are risking just hard money, 150K, 
right? That salesperson A will work out. They don't know how to recruit effectively, have no idea how to write a job ad, how to interview. They certainly don't use sales DNA. They'll use DISC or some other tool that has nothing to do with predictive uh, ability in sales. Um, and hope the person works out and they'll risk at least 150K in real money, you're better off shaking up a magic eight ball, first of all. But they're willing to continue to make this mistake over and over again, hoping a salesperson works out, willing to spend 150 grand to find out. We're not even talking opportunity costs. This is just hard money. But will not build a sales process to allow this salesperson to succeed, will not build an onboarding process to ensure the salesperson is effective. And they keep going over and over again in the same cycle. And that's what continues to happen. And so not having the right tools in place and then expecting somebody to be great. I mean, it's just pure insanity. You know, we, we, talk about so many analogies in life and cooking and sports and so on. And when it comes to goals, the, probably the easiest one or, or quotas or whatever um, is if you use Olympic athletes, um, every person that even makes the Olympics, you're already elite, right? I mean, it's less than 1% of that. You're already amazing. But what's the goal of every Olympian to win the what? Gold medal, of course. So, in a typical Olympics, you know, there's 300 events, um, about 10,000 athletes. So roughly 3% of Olympians will win gold and 97% will not win. Clearly, it is not the goal that makes the difference between the gold medal winners and everyone else. Mm -hmm. They all have the same goal. It's not the goal. The people that win gold have better daily habits than the people that don't pure and simple. And that's the part that these companies do not understand. And many of them have their, you know, KPIs. Okay. And how you define a KPI is, is different, but most companies, their KPIs are lagging indicators, um, which again, the most insane intergalactically idiotic lagging indicator is sales. You cannot measure sales to grow sales. You have to measure activities and behavior in order to grow sales. So just by pure math, the most basic of equations, increase quality activity, guess what goes up? It's that simple. And what do companies do? Not focus on this activity. They go, ah, we just want you to sell more. No, not how it works. But even even in those cases, you hear about companies that do like, uh, hey, it's cold call week and every single person in the company sits down and does nothing but cold calling and prospecting for a week. Yeah. And boom, they fill pipeline. But then it's like things just let go. So when you say like, you know, I love I love this conversation around lagging versus leading indicators, and I am 100 percent guilty of this. Yeah. I have totally failed a lot of people that have worked for me over the last 20 years because I just didn't know any better. I was a dumb idiot, you know, <laughs> like, and I just, yeah, I didn't know any better. Right. But so now, well, so now it's like, when you look at this and you say, okay, you know, you gave an example of a lagging indicator, you know, what was our sales? How did our, our quarter end? You know, like I love companies that are in quarterly cycles because you know, you can manipulate and abuse them at the end of the quarter. Right. It's like, oh, your quarter ends when, okay. It's the, 
oh, your your year end is actually January 31st, not December 31st. Okay, we're just going to hold off until like January 25th. And we're going to, you know, because, but it's like everybody who's ever purchased anything in a B2B situation understands this world and, and like syncs up their purchasing behavior against companies core, you know, the vendors quarter and the, and, and annual closes. Right. Why? Because like, it's like, boom, instantaneously, you get like the magic discount out of thin air. And oh, by the way, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, this discount we're going to give you that you have to sign by January 31st. Guess what? We really know that if we wait until February 15th, we can still get the same deal, right? And <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This offer really expires on the 31st. Yeah, right, buddy. You know, I, I, I shouldn't call out this company, but whatever. I don't care. Um, most of them are criminals anyway. So before Zoom Info, we, we're talking to HubSpot and, um, oh, you know, this geez. guy's, you know, we're, we're evaluating CRMs and marketing tools anyway. So. This guy goes, hey, Steve, so um, I looked you guys up, you know, looks like you're, you know, sales training company, cool, you know, all that kind of stuff. I like what you're doing. He goes, but we're a Sandler shop here. I go, okay, listen, dude, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. You listening? Don't Sandler me. Okay, whatever you do, do not Sandler me. You got it? What does he do five seconds later? Well, um, Max, can we at least agree that if you see value today, you'll move forward. And if you don't, we'll part ways. I'm like, dude, are you a, are you a robot? I just told you not to do the, what the, you just the trial did. Closes. Oh, it's so this is the garbage that's being taught, but it gets worse with zoom info. So we had them on and then the, the sales rep goes, okay, it's the 29th of the month. So, you know, here, here's what we'll be willing to do, okay? If you sign by, you know, the 30th, right? We'll do it for, you know, 17 grand. I go, okay, I have two questions. Are you guys selling the business? What do you mean? Well, clearly you're only gonna be in business for the next two days or you wouldn't be doing this. Are you guys gonna continue doing business after the 31st? Yeah, okay. Um, second question. So if I wire you $18,000 on February 1st, my wire is rejected. Does money, does money turn into Dogecoin or what? what <laughs> yeah. What happens on, on the first? Well, no, well, no, no um, let me talk to my manager. Yeah. This is like a huge company. This is the crap that continues to happen because you have made up ridiculous quarterly amounts where the sales magically must be in uh, before that day or else they don't count. Well, so these companies well, go, hey, let's arm wrestle all our clients into buying before they're ready. And, you know, in order to do that, We'll probably have to discount, um, which will set us up for failure because every future contract, they'll want the same discount and then they'll have that over us. Yeah, that's a good business strategy. Let's do that. I mean, a lot of this stems from public companies that have to issue earnings that, then of course, want to juke their quarters because there's MBOs attached to them. I worked for a, I yeah. worked for a, a dot com. I mean, this is going I'm 20 years ago. I worked for a dot com and the CEO had the it was incredible like you could tell like we would get into whatever cycle on the quarter and, and there'd be a mandate just don't pay don't pay any bills do not pay a single bill 
And 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 there'd be like a span of like four or five, six weeks where like finance was not allowed to release a single check. Now, of course, yeah. <laughs> it caused all sorts of problems for the business, but it didn't matter because the quarter numbers were good. And then the quarter would close. Yeah. They'd release all this money. Yeah. They'd they'd issue a correction to the, like the previous quarter that we had to re, you know, restate everything. So then the next quarter was clean. And, would, and you're like, you're like watching this. And you're like, how the how does this function in, in, in the real world? There was another version of that that we did that was insane to watch also. I'm trying to remember. But, it, it, you know, it was like, but you could see it was like, you know, show me incentives, I'll show you behaviors, right? Like there's, what's the version of that quote? So what are, and this is why I like Jason and what Jason was saying of like, there wasn't a quarter. It was like monthly behavior. And he was trying to solve, and I think he did solve the first part of this issue around like, you know, like every month is still its own month and you kind of like avoid people like, you know, all this different stuff. But what's what are good leading indicators? Like, how do you start to write this ship? I mean, and and we'll start with the leading indicators and activities and habits, and then we'll go from there yeah. into like, how do you restructure your sales organization? Yeah, I mean, we call them quality at bats. And it's a it's just a very simple to understand. You don't need to know anything about baseball. But when you go up to the plate, if your goal, your only goal is to hit home run, uh, you're going to strike out. Um, the goal when you go up to the plate is to have a quality at bat. What does that mean? Well, based on the situation you're in, maybe it's moving the runner over. Maybe it's taking 30 pitches. Um, maybe it's hitting the ball up the middle. Whatever it is, it is not outcome-based. It is all based on having a quality at bat. Doesn't even mean you touch the ball. You could make the pitcher throw 40 pitches, but he's out of the game in the sixth inning. You were the most important player in the game and you did not succeed, quote unquote. So the goal is to have as many quality at bats in a game as possible. And if all your players have quality at bats, you win most of the games. Not if all your players try to hit home runs. We know what happens. So we took that concept and, and we changed KPI to DPI, right? So we, we call them daily performance indicators. So what are the things a salesperson should be doing every day? And all they need to do is that, that's it, nothing else. And so what are DPIs? We, we have this little thing we call daily 100 and every quality at bat um, is worth a certain amount of points, right? So. Let's just say somebody's an outside sales rep and they have to make 50 dials a day, right? One dial is one point, right? Maybe they're in software and, you know, one of their DPIs is executed demos, right? You got to have, you know, two demos a day and cool, those are worth 20 points. Um, thank you notes, um, client contacts, um, follow-up calls, moving someone from one stage to the next, that could be right, a DPI. But you want your salespeople feeling good when they leave the day, not horrible, not inadequate, not fearful. And if you use the progress principle in the way that you teach salespeople, they're going to leave happy, they're going to come in happy. But all I want my team doing is having quality at bats. That's it. Can't control the outcome. If I hit the ball hard, I hit a rocket down the third baseline and the guy makes a diving stab at third. That doesn't mean I suck. 
But that's what I'm told in sales. And it's the reverse. It's the polar opposite of what you should be doing. Because if you tell the guy he sucks and you put pressure on him, he's going to strike out on three pitches the next time he's up at the plate because he's got you in his head telling him he's inadequate. And that is what happens on future demos when people are made to feel like crap because they didn't sell something. Um, and that's the key. And every client we've ever had that's put in DPIs has increased sales. Every single one. So I, I love this concept. And, and we've talked about this before. So then it goes from, I mean, you have to figure out what the DPIs actually are and how it, it comes Correct. up to your business. But then the second yeah. thing that we've talked about is like, you know, if, if you've got a target of 100 and you've, you've figured out, you know, what, what those things are that equal 100, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and now you're looking at your sales organization. You're saying, okay, on a, on a trend line, you know, are you hitting 100 every day, right? And if you're not, why didn't you? And, and it's not like you missed it one day, but like if, if you're not, then what's going on? And if you're over it, great, you're going to be even more successful. But it becomes like a much more tangible, like today I did the work I needed to do today. And yes, I think those are the biggest misses I had for a long time was really understanding. Could you actually explain to your employees, your team, what their job was? And a very concrete like basis. And this is across the entire organization. Like your job is to do these things. And if you do these things, you're doing a good job, right? So I love this. I love this. I love this idea. But so now my my follow-up for you is beyond trying to figure out what the DPIs are for your business, how long does it take you to ramp a salesperson into this? Now, if you show up and you say, okay, we've got a ton of, you know, like uh, not that we're using like a Zoom info and we're just giving you a bunch of leads to prospect, but we actually have some sort of pipeline that we're going to give you. It still is going to take them time to ramp into this. So yeah. how do you ramp a salesperson into this and how much time are you assuming before that salesperson should be successful? And when I say successful, I'm not saying successful in terms of generating closed business for you, but successful in terms of executing the sales process as you've defined it so that way they can then build success. What does that look like? So if we think about why we teach this um, physiologically, you know, people have different answers when we ask them, how many days does it take to form a habit, right? If, you know, people have all their different answers. They use the Gladwell thing, 21 days, right? Which is not a chance in hell. It's 21 days. Um, so the study that I like to point to um, is from the European Journal of Social Psychology. It's from the 50s or 60s. It says 66 consecutive days of doing an activity, right, will therefore increase the likelihood of it becoming habit. So you have salespeople, sales managers, CEOs, whatever, who've never done any of this ever in their life. And so it's physically impossible, mentally, psychologically, scientifically, to assume that they would somehow adopt this within a week or two. So it is at least two months of doing this before this becomes a habit. You know one of the people in your Vistage group, our buddy, okay? And when I went to his office right after we put this in, it gave me the most joy probably I've ever had in my life. I saw some of the reps and they had you know, three ring binders or whatever on their desks full of their daily 100s. And one of the people who adopted it was probably going to be fired when we first started working with them in less than a year she won their salesperson of the year award and it was mainly because of that 
um, those her words, not ours. So it's, it's just like anything else. Most companies, and you know this from our group we're in, people will see a good idea and they go, oh, I'm going to drink water. I'm going to drink 70 gallons in my body every day, right? And you do it for three days and then it's done. Let's go on to the next thing. Oh, you know what? I'm on bulletproof coffee. Uh, I'm going to do that now, right? So you go from thing to thing to thing. You've never done one thing in your life for 66 days in a row. And it's always on to the new shiny object. So it takes a commitment from the company to be willing to do things differently than they've done. And it's quite a simple equation. If you track the DPIs, even just for two weeks, you'll see a dramatic improvement in activity. But the mistake most companies make, and you know these, they're called QBRs, right? For, for those of you listening, right? Quarterly business review. It's in, again, I'm using the word insane a lot because it, it lacks sanity for, for someone to think, well, I'm not going to help this person. I'm going to let them die for 89 days, blow all these leads, all these appointments. Then I'm going to tell them how bad they did and tell them to fix it or else they're going on a performance improvement plan. Are you nuts? Would you let a baseball player go O for 179 before you address the issue? And so you can see those issues in a week. And so then you're able to adjust on the fly 12 times sooner and go, hey, man, you're kicking butt, bro. You're, you're doing your calls. You're doing your demos. You're doing this, but we're not converting. Let's figure out what we're saying. Let's role play together, right? Let's do some exercises together. Let's go over your hook, your value prop, your intro, your demo. What? That's the role of a sales manager or a sales leader that they're not doing. And they wait till these people are downtrodden, desperate, right? Just totally distraught that they're not producing when they could have fixed that nine weeks earlier. That's what DPIs allow you. To so this do. is also, I mean, if you say 66 days, I mean, sales is not a seven day a week activity, right? People need to unplug usually on the weekends, right? So you're really talking about a quarter in habit forming. And then you're talking about probably at least another quarter based on what your close rate is and close time is for companies. You're, you're, you're talking about two quarter investment by most companies in order to actually see if this is, you know, like get to the point where they're going to see differences. Probably three quarters. I mean, we, we work on deals where um, it might be, I mean, let me think about this one. I've had some where it was maybe like a six to nine month engagement to when you get to contract signature, then at that point you probably have, you know, three, four, five months of implementation and migrations. And then you're plus another 90 to 100 days before, you know, you see revenue recognition out of that, right? So, I mean, a year, like 12 months to 15 months before, I mean, that's not an unusual like cycle in, in, in my world when you start talking about like large enterprise technology kind of cycles. So, you know, um, I, I think about this a lot when I, when I think about our structure in terms of like, you know, is it a, is an SDR BDR function is an AE function? Is there an AM behind the AE? You know, what is an, what does a sales engineering role look like? And, and, oh yeah, you know, you either need to optimize for, you know, an SMB smaller transactional acquisition where you're maybe going to go the entire cycle in less than six months, or you're going to go up stack. And if you go up stack, this is what this really means for you. 
And I think that's a lot of the conversation. I don't know how much that conversation happens, you know, at the upper ranks within companies when they start making and thinking about this stuff. And I'm, 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 it's not really a question, but I'm kind of curious what your, you know, I mean, you, you get hired to do sales training for organizations are, is, is this like people realize there's something wrong and want to change it? Or is it like, oh, you know, like, like what, you know, where, where, where do you, like, how do you get engaged with this? And what are companies, I mean, is it just like, hey, our revenue's down, we need to fix it, and we finally maybe think that there might be a problem that we need to address? Or is it like our sales team sucks, come in and like fire everybody for us because we can't we can't figure out how to do it? Yeah, there's so many functions of it, you know, starting with hiring the wrong people, which is what the biggest challenge is. You, you've got to start with great people, which is why we do DNA. But other than that, let's say you do start with an amazing person. There are 97 on DNA and you put them into an organization with no accountability, no coaching, no habits, no nothing. They're gone. So there's and then the organization will blame the salesperson. So, again, we got a turnover problem. No, you have a you problem. But until it becomes a, a real major pain, like we're losing vendors or we're losing our long-term employees or profitabilities down, or until it really hurts, that's when people start to address it, um, which is unfortunate. And if you think about sales in terms of culture, you know, we talk about culture a lot, you know this in our group and so on. If your organization, let's just say, has a bad culture, how long does it take to turn that around? I mean, it. you first have to make the assumption that the people that are driving the culture actually are aware of it and decide to make a change, right? I mean, like, that's a foundational question. And considering that culture really gets set by the ownership and the executives, the managers, and the people at the top and permeates, I mean, this is, culture really is a top-down thing, right? It's not a bottom-up issue. So if you Correct. have a bad culture, it, you know, that issue starts with the people that actually have to change in order to make culture change. So like your question is, is like, how long does that take? Well, I mean, probably never. Yeah. If you had to, if you had to bet your life, if they actually had a study on this, maybe they do where you've seen a company go from a bad culture to a good culture, how many months or years do you think the median would be? I see this more in in sales and acquisition. So ownership changes because of some sort of sales transaction yeah. or exit. And it feels like in that role, it takes probably somewhere up to like the six month mark, you know, of real concentrated, we're changing the culture before, you know, uh, trust really kind of starts kicking in and people, you know, and like, and then probably another six, six months after that. So about a year of like, and this is like really intense around a year. If you don't change the culture, what does that cost the company? Uh, Right. I mean, it's incalculable, right? But there are companies who pay millions of dollars to go through this transformation because they understand the value. That same company won't spend five grand on looking at who they have on the sales team. What are our processes? What's our value prop? What's our sales stat? What's our tech stat? They won't spend a penny and just think, well, it's the wrong people, or maybe we're gonna change the price, or maybe we're gonna do this. It takes a year, six months to a year, right? To see the fruits of your labor. Same with culture, right? So when we implement 
DPIs, sales DNA, detaching from outcomes, all these things. It takes a while. It is not like we bring in the magic selling system from the 70s and that's going to fix our shit. No, that doesn't work. So you have to have leaders who are committed to putting the time in to to benefit, right? And there's a million examples. Um, You probably know some of these, but when I was teaching all the Aflac people around the country, I found this picture of this bamboo. And then somebody told me, oh, is that, you know, that you're going to use the Chinese bamboo analogy? And I'm like, oh, what's that? You have to water bamboo for years, every day, water every day, nothing happens. After a year, it's dirt. After two years, it's dirt. After three years, it's dirt. And in the fourth year, it will grow 80 feet in six weeks. But you have to be committed to watering your plants every day. And your plants are your salespeople. And you won't see it today. You won't see it tomorrow. You won't see it next week. You won't see it this quarter. But all the work you're putting in will eventually allow them to skyrocket in success. But the problem is they never get there because you stopped watering them after 19 days. And you wonder why you just have a pile of dirt. And... That's what I see. You, you're talking about tools. You, you mentioned tools, and you also mentioned CRM earlier. So let me connect these, right? So, um, you know, uh, topical for right now, Salesforce has done their first round of layoffs, I think probably in the history of Salesforce. And yeah. um, and Miniof has, has made comments that went, of course, leaked about and, and it's like productivity and, and is our remote cult, you know, is our remote work impacting productivity and we're hiring all these people. And, and there was a there was a something that came out that was talking about I forget the exact numbers, but like sales based on productive and experienced AEs, you know, and like literally carrying like 80, 85 percent of the sales for the business versus like, you know, like oh, the right. 80, 20 is absolutely up, upside down with this company. We're like 20 percent are selling 80 and the 80 are selling 20. And and what are they going to do about all this stuff? But again, I think you talked about this earlier. It stems from, hey, we just hired all these randos off out of college, gave them no support. We, the thing was, the industry was so hot, yeah. like every company had to run this platform. So we were just taking orders and there wasn't anything more to it. Now people are really looking at, do we need to spend this money or not? And and I'm going to connect this to a question for you. But you know, in the sales space and in sales enablement, now we have a lot of tools that sit on top of the CRM. You know, we talk about you know, tools to help you prospect and do email sequences and do auto dialing and like, and I feel like, you know, and I'm guilty of this because I'm in, in the tech world, but like, there's this run to tools like, oh, we have a sales problem. Let's go out and get an outreach or a sales loft or one of these tools, because now it can make our sales team more effective and our sales should go up. But like, do sales go up? So how do you, you know, if you say, okay, you have to make 50 dials a day, you can make 50 dials a day without using outreach, right? Like, so how, how do you talk to people about like right, I don't want to say right sizing, but like repairing their thoughts around sales management and sales activities and like tooling and like recording data in the CRM. I feel like every company has the same kind of, did you put your stuff in Salesforce? And the answer is like, no, you know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right. Like, how do you deal with this as an outsider being hired to fix these problems? Yeah. I mean, if we take the CRM thing, which, you know, uh, salespeople would, would rather have a colonoscopy than put something in their CRM. 
but it's because they're told they have to use the CRM. And, you know, this goes back to uh, the philosophy that we teach and, and why so many salespeople don't get it right. Unfortunately, right. is because they just sell features and benefits and that's not what drives people to buy. You have to let people know what happens if they don't buy your stuff. You do not tell them what they gain if they do buy your stuff. You tell them what they lose if they stay the same. And that's why most salespeople don't adopt their CRMs is because they're told what to do. They have to understand what they lose if they do not use this. Future relationships, referral business, repeat, you know, MRR. When you can equate what they lose if they don't spend nine minutes doing this, big surprise, they start adopting it. So that's one piece of CRM. And again, companies change CRMs, right? Like the weekend golfer changes drivers. Like, what? Must be the driver. I, you know, I don't like the head on that ping. It's not the driver. But they think, well, we'll get Salesforce. Well, now we'll do HubSpot. Now we'll do Pipedrive. Whatever. It's you. But in terms of the technology, you know, there's already this... Um, it's not a hindrance. It's more of a myth, right? That you, you can sell, you know, selling by email, right? Where oh, you, God. let me just automate it, right? <sighs> That's what companies think. And so they don't even know how to pick the phone up. It's unbelievable. And so when you have these automated cadences that go out and I get it, if you're sending 50 a day, a hundred a day, whatever, it's fine. But if that automated cadence, number one, if it looks like it's just tacky automated trash, you're retarding the effect of using it because nobody's going to want to do business with you because you just send some automated crap. Language is everything. I just had to edit a couple things for somebody we're going to work with and so on. And I'm saying to myself, like, who wrote this? Like, what is this? It was so God awful. Like, I, it's crazy. And they don't review any of this. So they'll use some standard pre-populated automation, maybe outreach sense or house or whatever, right? Which is also garbage. And so they're not even looking at what's being said. And so they think, right, that it's helping them when in reality, it's retarding their own growth. It's the, well, let's just put the automated uh, cash. You know, we just need to self checkout, right? We don't need people anymore. You still need people because somebody hits the wrong button or they didn't weigh their kumquats or whatever. And you cannot just brush under the rug investing in your people and role playing and developing and coaching and actually doing something right as a sales leader other than drawing up thermometers on your wall and seeing what, what, hey, everyone, let me send you out the charts of who's doing what, and this will drive people. And it's just stuff from the 70s, man. It's crazy. Gongs when you close a deal don't, don't work. You can't go have a giant oh gong in the office. God. So, um, yeah, don't get me started I, on that. There's a bunch of sales methodologies on the market today, and I actually like like a lot of them, I'm not gonna mention them by name, but a lot of them 
if you pay attention, you can track back to like inception. So there's a lot of stuff on the market today that comes back to challenger sale and Chris Dixon that then refines it. Right. And, and a lot yeah. of them I really agree with and I really like, and I've, and I've started buying just because of curiosity. I've been buying sales books, you know, going back to like the fifties and the forties and the thirties. I haven't read them all yet, so I can't give you any reviews, but I'm really kind of curious to see yeah. what was being taught in the thirties, you know, cause you have the, uh, like the, the Carnegie, like how to, how to make friends and influence people that like, I feel like half of that, like gets regurgitated and like everything that we're doing now, it's like, there's no original sure. thought at some point, like, where does it actually come from? So like, I need to find the original Greek on like how to sell if you're a merchant street, you know, like, like I, yeah. and we could probably probably connect it all together. Okay. So let's say, let's say a company, uh, they make the first step, which is they understand, okay, we're going to go to a leading indicators versus lagging indicators. We're going to figure out what kind of activity base we want to have. We've, we've figured out, you know, like how to score, you know, maybe, maybe you're not like highly, you know, it's not a cold call and cold email because you're in an AE and we have an SDR for that. So we have different metrics for our different yeah. people, right? How do you design a good compensation structure? You know, you're going to hire an AEN, you know, uh, you're going to assume that it's going to take them, you know, 180 days. It's going to take them two quarters before they're going to have any sort of positive revenue that's going to start coming in. But even that's going to maybe take another another six months, right? Yeah. Um, how do you what What is a sane compensation structure? You know, for a healthy company, look like. You know, this is not a popular opinion, but again, if you look at all the science and data, the most successful salespeople in the world are intrinsically motivated and have an ambivert type of, of style. In other words, some extroversion, some introversion, but they're generally motivated by mastery, job well done, right? Those types of things. So if we know that and our comp plans are all purely extrinsically based money and so on, it's not going to motivate a percentage of the population akin to you go to a restaurant with your wife and they have one meal available. Is there anything else on here? <laughs> no, that's our meal. It's a uh, raw seared uh, donkey liver. It's what? Yeah, I love it. So, well, because I love it, you should eat it. And that's the problem with comp plans, right? And so we have variable complaints. In other words, they can choose the one they want. So you have families, let's say, uh, you know, mom is a breadwinner, the dad, you know, just lost his job, right? And she's the only one working. She might take a higher base salary because she's got to support the family. But now let's go reverse. You've got two people, the wife just, you know, sold her company, you know, and they're just looking for stuff to do. They don't care about money. They got 40 million in the bank, but you don't know because you don't know anything about them. So having customizable comp plans to me is what I see amongst many of the successful clients we have and their culture is abundantly amazing because of it. We have another client, they do about 150 million a year. They pay no commissions. None, not a cent. Every sales rep makes between, well, they start at 80 and go up to like 150. Can't go past that. They've got company cars and cell phones and 401k, every benefit known to man, and they pay them spot bonuses. Hmm. Nobody knows when they're coming. Nobody knows what they're for. So 
this one guy, Scott, he shipped like a bunch of chicken to Jenny O or some, or Jenny O chicken of AGB, some big, huge order of chicken, right? Their food distribution. And they showed up one day at his desk and you go, hey man, here you go, congrats. And it was a Rolex. And he's like, wow, what is this for? And they're like, just for being you, man. We appreciate everything you've done. Great job, keep it up. How did they know that he wanted a Rolex? Are they actually talking to their employee? I mean, like, I don't, I mean, like. Who'd they talk to? Because it wasn't him. I mean, this is, I mean, the thing about a company actually doing this is amazing. His wife. They said, Jenny, what would Scott really want? What's he always wanted that he'd never buy for himself? And she goes, that's easy. Rolex. Yeah. Actually knowing who your people are. I'm. I'm connecting this to like attrition rate and churn, and I'm just on the surface, I would bet that this company has a very low attrition rate and churn. 90, 98% uh, you know, retention rate for employees there. Their customer, uh, you know, lifetime, I don't even know what the years are, but 99% don't leave, right? It's, it's this kind of stuff. No commissions. No they don't have that crap goals and quotas. No, no. Our goal is to help the customer. That's the goal, right? That's it. And their average length of tenure for their sales reps, they've been around, I don't even know, 15 years maybe, is 12 years. No one leaves. They have no issues recruiting. Gee, I wonder why. Because all these people tell their friends every weekend how lucky they are. They have thousands of resumes waiting for people to apply for the next role. No commissions, no quotas. Yeah, sounds like a great place, right? Doesn't mean it's you have to do it. It just means that you can do it in a non-traditional way and have success. Um, and otherwise, I mean, this comes back to like the whole variable comp component of it, which is... Every time I've done this math and I've looked at a sales sales plan, a comp plan, and I've kind of like, un, you know, dug through it, you know, and, and like the healthy ones, it's like they've all hit, they know what the number is, right? It's like they're going to they're gonna pay 20% of, you know, gross profit in terms of like sales, yeah. you know? I, I mean, 20% just seems to be like the magic number that every, and like when, yeah, right, when you unpack this stuff, any kind of math that you work out, like, oh, we're paying an SDR based on an MQL or an SQL and like meeting set or whatever the thing is, yeah. you know, like you still get back to the same point, which is like, we know what our percentage is. And I've kind of always wondered of like, you know, you were talking about gross, gross profit earlier of like, why don't more companies just do this? Just say, hey, look, you know. Uh, you know, if you've got somebody who's motivated by, I want to make as much money as possible. Like, it's pretty easy to figure out, you know, like I'm not, I'm not that person, right? Like I fit in this other category. I'm way more driven by like, oh man, I just like, even if you don't get a pat on the back from like the, the client, but like knowing like, yeah. I just did something that is going to be, that's going to make the difference for this company. And like when it actually clicks in, the people that it's going to matter for aren't even going to know I was involved, right? Like it's so far removed from like, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and a lot of those, those times it's like, I'm gonna make a, make a do very well. Right. And we make a killing off of that, but like, it's not like, Oh, great. I'm going to go out and buy myself a car. You know, like it, it's not, um, it doesn't, it doesn't connect that way. So, I mean, I get what you're saying with that, but like at the same time, the income is a byproduct of success, right? So if you are successful, your income should increase. Like you should have, 
like the bank account to show that like you have done good work. So how do you connect this and give that back to, you know, your sales team of saying, you, you know, you are really good at your job. We've made a ton of money off of you. You know, yeah, you're driving a Corvette that we paid for or whatever it is, or we've given you Rolexes, but like, like, how do you actually connect a sales plan and variable comp back to, you know, GP in the same way that's not quarterly motivated, that's not, you know, all these evil things? So if you know, okay, to cover this person's nut, right, they have to do a million in sales. Let's just say that's your math, right? Okay. Your all in OTs, 200 grand, are they going to do a million? Whatever. Just say that's the case. And we know we need them to do a million. Let's say that's the case. How do we ensure that they have the best opportunity to generate a million bucks? Well, what I can tell you the answer is not is you need to do a million bucks. And if you don't, you're going on a perform. That is not what will generate the million. Wanting them to generate the million. Uh, yeah, that don't work right. either them writing a million dollars on their mirror that don't work either and having them fill out a big happy gilmore check what do you want to write this year in business i'm going to put this on my wall and do a vision board that don't work either so what does work investing in them if you had to have somebody build a house on a cliff for your family and it's on the cliff and you have to live on this cliff. Who do you want building the house? I mean, it's no different. Yeah. And, but you have to find the person and you better make sure they're trained, bonded, you know, all the rest. Mm -hmm. But we don't do that with our salespeople. Like if I want my salesperson to sell a million bucks, I'm going to teach, train, coach, invest, role play, practice, inspect what I expect, do it again, monitor, encourage, support. That's not done ever or in very rare cases. And then companies are mad that the person didn't write a million bucks. That's where all the effort and time goes. I mean, just thinking about that from like, a, oh, you've just been hired into a company and you've got to go sell a million dollars with a fill, you know, blank, right? In order for like, like that kind of number, like to me, it like immediately doesn't elicit like, oh, I'm going to go out and sell a million bucks and maybe hugely successful. But at the same time, if I went out and sold the million dollars, show me the money, right? Like there's, so how, you know, again, we're talking about like, how do you design this? So now you're a healthy organization, you know, you're, you're doing DPIs, yeah. you're bringing training the training isn't like, Hey, here's yeah. how you conduct an effective demo. You've got, you know, you've got the ability to do like coaching and like stuff. It's, you know, and like, again, you tools or no tools, right? Whatever it is. Right. Yeah. But then you say, okay, great. You know, Steve, you know, you've, 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 you're, you're, you're here. You've been here for nine months now, you know, you've, you're hitting your stride, yeah. right? Like this isn't, we're going to show up and give you yeah. a Rolex, right? This is like, how do you design a comp plan? You know, because Steve, you came in and you said, hey, I've got money in the bank. I've got, you know, health care for my, my partner. I don't need this stuff. What I want is I want to what is the lowest base that you can give me? Oh, you're legally required to give me twenty four thousand dollars. I want twenty four thousand dollars. And I want I want a piece of everything I do for you. Like, yeah. how do you how yeah. do you build that comp plan for that personality? So here's the this is the, really the whole thing. 
if you don't know who that person is, you can't build the comp plan. Mm -hmm. Again, if, if, if I'm making you a dinner uh, for um, you and your wife's anniversary, I'll probably need to know what you like to eat. I should probably know whether or not you're a vegetarian and have any food allergies. Right. I'm not going to cook what I want. And so if a organization does not have this data, how could they possibly come up with a meal to satisfy their person? That's why, to, to again, to go back to it, I wish I owned it, I don't, but that's why we use sales DNA. We can tell you in five seconds, are these people extrinsic, intrinsic, altruistic? What do they love to do every day? What are they good at? And we can craft DPIs around those skill sets and or craft the comp plan around what they want and what they're driven by. Um, we, it, it's when you not do like personality. most of the but when you do personality yeah. tests, you know, assessments, right? And this Not is a, I, I, right. But this is a, again, I, I'm, I, my brain works by like really crude associations to some degree, right? So it's not a personality yeah. test, but it's an assessment that's, you know, like you would, you would take and say, okay, this is the sales version of a personality assessment to some, you know, so that way you can, you can put somebody into, you know, how, how does this person actually group, right? You know, cause what you're looking for is you're looking for indicators that's going to group, you know, your sales team into a, you know, some sort of category. Like I know more about this person now because they fit into this behavioral pattern, right? And this is what's going to motivate them. And so I don't know, I haven't gone through the sales DNA. I probably should do sort it, but like you're sort of it's the motivation piece. Okay. That's just superfluous. That, that, that is just a tiny piece of understanding what drives them that will not lead to their success. What leads to their success are understanding what's living in their brain. If they need to be liked, mm -hmm. if they're uncomfortable discussing money, and if they can't recover from rejection quickly, it's irrelevant what their motivation style is. Th this is why personality tests are useless. It right. doesn't mean anything. So it's a, it's a piece of it when I start with the right dude and I know, right, what this guy's going to be able to accomplish. And it's using the knowledge that's deeper in terms of what drives him to be successful. Oh, he likes nice cars, right? I'm just making yeah, this yeah, up, yeah. but he likes cars, right? Okay, dude. So we're going to talk about what we need to accomplish here as a company, we do this through these number right, DPIs and so on. If we do this, we pretty much know you'll end up around here. What do you think? I know you're new here. What are some of your goals and thoughts about what you could accomplish? Well, you know what I hadn't thought of is I think I can build a relationship with, with whatever, Poland Spring. Cool. So how are you going to do that? Well, I think I can do this. And they'll come up with some other ideas or DPIs that they want. I want to do trade shows. I want to do podcasts. I want to do whatever. Okay, cool. So he or she comes up with some kind of goal or metric or something. It's not you assigning it mm -hmm. to them. And he says, you know what? I think I can do 2 million. You do. 2 million. And our expectation is 1 million. Yeah, I think I can do two. Cool. You do two million, I'll get you a lease. I'll lease you a Porsche for a year. Pick whatever one you want, whatever model. Because you know the guy likes Porsches because you found out about him in the interview. That's just one small thing. Other people, it's vacation time. 
there are people that haven't taken vacations in six years, right? Or because of COVID, they wanted to go to Disneyland and couldn't go. So it's, it's the intimate knowledge of knowing your people and spending time with them when they first start working with you, which people don't spend that time. They're just looked at like a number. That's why they don't overperform. Half of people hit their quotas, half so for a reason. So I, I know what you're going to answer, but I'm going to ask you this question anyways. Is this actually scalable on a one-to-one basis for a sales organization, right? Because what you're talking about is, you know, I'm going to sit down, I'm going to, I'm going to do my job as your sales manager, right? And and now we're really talking about sales leadership. You know, uh, you've got managers, you've got directors, you've got a VP, you've got, you know, whatever the hierarchy of your sales organization is, but I'm going to do yeah. my job as your sales manager. And I'm going to understand that you, Steve, more than anything else in the world, want a yellow gold, blue dial, blue bezel submariner, right? Yeah. Like, like, yeah. like you've wanted this thing since you were a 12 year old child. And this is like, this yeah. is like, you'll never buy it for yourself. You know, even if I gave you a check for $40,000, you would not go to the Rolex store and buy it. Right. But like, this is Correct. it for you. And I know that Yeah. obviously if, if you crushed it and you came back and you said, Hey, I hit this t- you know, whatever it is. And I dropped off, t- you know, I, and I, I gave you like a, you, first off, you'd have to be able to source the freaking watch. Cause that's a different game right now. But yeah. like, you know, gave yeah. you this as a, you know, like you, you, we'd have a great relationship in terms of like, you know, the business, but is that scalable for companies to deal with and say, you know, we've got 20 sell 10 sellers. Okay. 10 sellers. You can do it. We've got 20 sellers. We've got 30. We've got 500 sellers. We've got a thousand sellers. I mean, it feels like at some point that breaks down and like a sales force can't implement this just because they're not geared culturally to come after this. And is there a different way to go about this where say, Hey, look, you know, as a first step, I'm not going to figure out like that you want the Rolex, but I'm going to give you the option of saying, I want a high base with very low comp based on GP, or I want a really low yeah. base with really high comp. And I've got, you know, scales of versions A, B, or C. And you, Steve, you get to, I'm going to sit down with you. We're going to have a conversation and you're going to look at the menu and you're going to say, I want C. That's yeah. what I want. Right. Correct. So, yeah. and, and, and is, is that, is just doing that giving you a better, a leg up in the market of having a better culture and environment for your sales team? 100%. Um, and when people always ask, well, is it scalable? I always go back to if, if you had a, a camera that followed a sales manager around every day, your head would fall off at the unbelievable lack of productivity. That is a sales leader's job. You are to lead the salespeople. That's what you should be doing every day. Most of them don't do that. They're not trained to do it. They don't know how to do it. Sales managers get the least amount of coaching and training of of any level in a sales organization. But I will go back to, let's take Chick-fil-A, right? Which, you know, is probably the best example, right? Of a franchise, right? They make two and a half times, right? What McDonald's and freaking all those other ones make. But they started not with 10,000. One. So it's the same question I would ask an organization. Well, how do we scale? Get it right for these five people, then hire another sales leader to do the same thing. 
then you hire another one, then you hire another one. But if you don't do it right the first time, it will never scale, right? It'll never get there. Sales suffers from the same thing that we see in tech all the time, right? Where the leaders, the managers become people that were successful and, and you know, individual contributors. So you have a really good engineer, you have a really good salesperson, you have somebody who's a really good IC at that role. And it's like, oh, you're a successful, you're a successful salesperson. Boom, you're the sales manager, right? Like when you talk about like stuff that makes my skin crawl, like I am not a like that is not like I don't wake up in the morning and be like, gee, you know, I'm looking forward to like going out and managing people like it's just it's not how my brain is wired. But like I see this over and over again where companies are promoting people just because they're good at the job. They're like, well, obviously, you're going to be good at yeah, managing exactly. other people at the job. So, you you know, like this is going to be great for us. No, this is important, a, a good, important topic to end on, because we talk about this all the time and they go, well, you know. Michelle was good at sales. What are you talking about? They don't make flight attendants the pilot. But this is a huge mistake that companies make because they equate, well, they've been here and they've sold that. So automatically they'll be a good coach, good teacher, whatever. And it's cannibalizing organizations Um, because you take your best person out of sales, put them in charge of salespeople. They don't want, they think they want to be a leader. Then when they find out that it's different work, they go, I want to go back into sale. I mean, it's just a major headache. And so it's not impossible to find a great salesperson who became a great leader, but it's less than 10% of the time um, they have both skill sets. Last question for you, because this contradicts something that you said earlier, which is by definition, if you're trying to hire good managers, they're not necessarily good salespeople. And so this idea of they don't have experience actually doing the job is not necessarily a negative as long as they are trained and understand how to manage, lead, and incur, you know, encourage and develop salespeople doing the job, right? So like, right. you know, it's, it's again, it's this example of like, not all salespeople become good sales managers and not all good sales managers were good salespeople, right? Like it's, it's two different jobs, like very drastically different, right. different realities of people. Two different jobs, two different tests. That's why we have sales manager DNA and salesperson DNA. Completely different tests, completely different metrics. When we train and coach organizations and we train and coach salespeople and sales leaders, completely different curriculum, completely different everything. Um, Bill Belichick's never played a down in the NFL. (laughs) It doesn't mean anything. Um, But could he, are there coaches that were good players? Yeah, but there are a ton more uh, Magic Johnsons who were unmitigated disasters, right, as coaches, right? Best point guard in history, worst coach the Lakers ever had. So you have to be able to identify and, and, and understand what tools, traits, and styles people have to be able to take on that role. Sometimes they do come from the sales ranks, but oftentimes it's not somebody who was the top performer. And that's across every sport in history. Look it up. Very few people like Michael Jordan are great coaches. Very few. Steve, uh, next time we do this, I'm going to schedule like four hours and we're going to do it in person and we're going to have some kind of alcohol and we're going to get really crazy with this. But in the meantime, I said, thank you very much. This is fantastic. I can... I mean, I, Thanks, I, I, I really do think that this, 
this applies to so much more than just sales. I mean, because what you're talking about at the core really is organizational health and like how do you approach building a company and an organization at at different levels, right? Because you can, a lot of what you're talking about, you can apply to your finance team. You know, you can apply to your operations team. I mean, this this not yeah. what motivates people and how to take care of them isn't a sales only centric thing. And, you know, the more the more I think people really understand this and, and get into this, probably the better off we'll all be collectively. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm excited. I'm always happy to talk about this stuff. And again, half the people think I'm nuts, which is fine, right? That's good because I think they're nuts. So what I do know is that can, if you keep doing what you've always done, how could you possibly expect, right, to grow and scale and expand beyond your horizons? It just doesn't make sense to me. So sometimes, hey, we know what you've tried has accomplished this. What's the worst that happens? Let's try this. And if it sucks, you can go back to this. But it's being willing, right, to take that risk. And what do we really lose? Nothing. But what can we gain? Everything. Awesome. Thanks, man.